You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. As Joel said, my name is Kim Morris, and I will be reading from Matthew 19, 3 through 12. As you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I'm going to pray over... Justin, as he prepares to share with us. Father, thank you so much for this brother and uh, bringing him from a long ways away to share with us today. Thank you for bringing him through so much life experience seeking to faithfully navigate this difficult topic. God, with each one of us here, there are emotions and there are thoughts and, and challenges that we face as we look at this subject. It's not just ideas, but it's people. And so God, help us to draw nearer to your heart and your word and people in your name. Help us through Justin right now. Transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Um, I just want to extend my thanks for the opportunity to join you this morning, to be with your church over this weekend. I want to thank Dan and Debbie for hosting me and Joel for giving me an opportunity to return to Seattle because living in California has been like holding my breath (laughs) and it feels really good to be home. I would like to ask you to grant me a couple of concessions this morning before we get started. Um, and, and the first is that there is not enough time for this topic today. And I'm grateful that this is built into a sermon series that owns that and, and sees this as a starting place and not a finishing place. That is a requirement for today. And I'm going to tell you, and I think you'll see this by the end uh, of our morning together, uh, you don't know how big this topic is and how many talks we need to have um, but more on that in a minute. The second one uh, is, I I want to deal with with the title here, isn't Christianity homophobic? And what I want to get from you as a concession this morning, and I've got the amplified voice, so I guess if you don't give it, it doesn't really matter, Uh, but uh, is, is recognizing that the question here is not, are Christians homophobic? Or are there homophobic Christians? Or, or even, has the church been homophobic? The, the question is, 
is following Jesus inherently homophobic? This is about the teachings of Christianity and not the way that the church has or has not embodied that. Because if the question was, are there homophobic Christians, the church should say with adamance, yes. And we should say grieving, yes. And if we want to say collectively, has the church treated the LGBT communities in ways that do not represent Christ or ways that are unhomophobic, we would have to say yes. And the greatest exhibit, the exhibit A, the one that has been in our face for the last 40 years is where were we during the AIDS epidemic? And let me just remind you that Christians for 2,000 plus years now have been in the midst of the dying, caring for the sick, despite their beliefs or backgrounds, but not in the 80s. Something, something was wrong. It's something that the church needs to see, to repent of, to analyze and to assess, to do better, all those things. But the question again this morning is, isn't Christianity homophobic? And I, I, I want to help us think, to, just to begin with, uh, about this word homophobic and what we actually mean when we say it. Okay. Um, what, what we mean is that the, the way Christianity treats the issue of homosexuality is irrational. Right? That's, that's one of the ideas behind homophobic, is that there's an irrationality to our response to this issue. Or, to put it differently, another way to think about another aspect or facet of this uh, is that it is unjust. Homophobic implies that unjust treatment of other people because they are different than us. Or, uh, lastly, the word that comes to mind here is hateful. And so the idea here is that it has, that Christianity has a negative impact on uh, gay people inherent to its DNA. And so what I'd like to do today is, is take on all three of those ideas one by one and, and say, all right, well, if Christianity were to not be homophobic, that means that it would have a moral logic for its sexual ethic. And if Christianity isn't homophobic, then it would be consistently applied to all people. And if Christianity isn't homophobic, then it would be uh, a community, a place, a life of flourishing for gay people. That, that would be what I suggest has to be the case if it isn't. If Christianity isn't homophobic, then this is where we need to focus I don't know what sort of curiosities or questions or maybe even bracing on the edge of your seat the passage reading brought about this morning, but I'm going to assume that it wasn't expected. Why, oh why, would I turn to a passage on divorce when we're here to talk about homosexuality? And the reason is because here we see Jesus think theologically, think biblically, think as Jesus about sexuality. And I want to draw your attention not so much to what he talks about, but how. Because I think it gets us into this issue. It gets us into this question of moral logic. But let me define my terms. What is a moral logic? A moral logic means there's an underlying reason for your morality. There's a foundation, okay? And so everybody has a moral logic. That doesn't mean everybody's moral logic works or is the same or is even consistent. But there are reasons we draw the boundaries we draw. And so the primary moral logic of our modern world begins with desire and is boundaried by consent. That's, that's the moral logic. That, that tells us the purpose of sexuality it's for the fulfillment of desire, and it tells us the things that fall beyond the pale, places where consent doesn't exist. But a moral logic is necessary because it tells us not the what, but the why. Okay? And there has been a tendency, especially on issues of sexuality in the church, to settle for the what, to talk about where the boundaries are, and that's caused two problems. One is 
the church may practically pay homage to a Christian morality, but functionally live out a non-Christian morality. Okay. And so what I would suggest here is Jesus is facing a similar thing here. The question that comes about divorce is one that is steeped in a culture war of his age. What are the appropriate requirements for a man to divorce his wife? And what, what I want you to notice that Jesus does here uh, is in his answer, notice in verse 33, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful, lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered and said, have you not read? Now this is a common way that Jesus responds to questions. He points to scripture. But what's really interesting here is the question itself is rooted in a particular passage. Those who have come to question Jesus, those who have come to trap him in his answer, uh, they are thinking about Deuteronomy chapter 24. That's where the debate is. When it says, when it says uh, you know, for any cause here, what, is, what types of causes qualify? So what's surprising here is that Jesus doesn't say, have you not read in Deuteronomy? But he says, have you not read in Genesis? This is what reveals to me that Jesus is functioning from a moral logic standpoint. And I'll show you what I mean. Read with me verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Not only is the passage that he refers to, alluding to Genesis 1 and quoting out of Genesis 2, not only is that not from the law of Deuteronomy, but it's not about divorce. Did you notice? It's about marriage. Effectively, Jesus says here, we cannot talk about divorce until we talk about marriage. And then he says, we cannot talk about marriage until we go back to the beginning. Okay. That instinct is essential to this idea of moral logic. And so, again, what he does here is he, he goes back to the creation narrative, the beginning of man and woman, the beginning of humanity, the beginning of marriage, and he starts there. The conversation, he says, begins there. And so he says, after that, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Do you hear that emphasis on from the beginning? Now, Jesus recognizes in this passage that we don't live in the context of Genesis 1 and 2. Right? Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, before the curse and corruption, before the sinful bent that we find in our lives, before all of these things is there. And he says, well, there's hardness of heart, and we need to talk about that. And later he's going to say, there are eunuchs, and there were no eunuchs in the Garden of Eden, right? That's part of the fallen world, that our bodies don't work the way they're supposed to, that other people don't treat us the way that they're supposed to. That context matters, but we cannot talk about how we live life here until we know how life was built to be lived. Okay. And so we have to begin at creation. Now, why, why is this so? It's because creation shows us intent. Right? It's, it's built into the word creation. If there is a creation, there is a creator. If there is a world, it has been designed. It's the idea of a master builder. And so notice what he does here. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said? Okay. So the first thing is he, he takes us to Genesis 1, 27 and 28. And you may or may not be familiar with this passage, but it's key, it's pivotal, it's definitive for what it means to be human and the storyline of the Bible as a whole. But what you may have never noticed before is that sexuality is central to this passage. 
And so notice what it says in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we have the reality of sexed bodies, male and female, right there in the creation of human beings. And not just as an accessory or a side note, but connected to this idea of them being made in God's image, right? And so this isn't suggesting, hey, men and women both are created in the image of God. I I think it's more than that. There's some sort of relationship between the reality of male and female and our calling and purpose as image bearers of God. And so biological sex is right here. And then following right behind it in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's sexuality as it's expressed right there. And so he creates them and he commissions them. And sex is at the center of that. But when Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said... He who from the beginning created them male and female is a label. It's too long to fit on a name tag. But do you understand what I mean? Jesus is identifying the speaker for us. He doesn't say, have you not read that God said? He says, have you not read that God, parentheses, he who created them male and female said? Do you understand why that's significant? It means that here Jesus is again pointing to design and intention. That God has a plan and purpose for sexuality. Earlier I said to you, said to you that our culture's primary moral ethic begins with desire and is boundaried by consent. The moral logic that Jesus presents here begins with design and is bounded by purpose. Okay. Now here's why that matters. Because if you don't know what something is for, you cannot be judged if it's, or you cannot judge if it's being used rightly. If you don't know what something is for, I would suggest you don't even know what something is. Have you ever had that experience where you're in a friend's kitchen and you're digging for a utensil and you find something in their utensil drawer you've never seen before? Why don't you know what it is? Because you don't know what it's for. And when it comes to something that is so core and intrinsic to our life, like sexuality, the way we use things matters. Another thing I imagine some of you have done, have you ever had a loose screw that you needed to deal with and there wasn't a screw around but there was a knife? And you're like, well, I can make the knife turn the screw. That's not what a knife is for, and when you use it to turn a screw, because it's not blunt on the front, it has a tendency to slip, and it's dangerous to use a knife as if it were a screwdriver. But more than that, the more you use a knife like a screwdriver, the less it's good at being a knife, as you dull the edge that was meant to cut. That's what I'm suggesting to you. Before we can answer the question, what is good sexuality and what is bad sexuality? What is right in sex and what is wrong in sex? Where are the boundaries? We have to understand the purpose. And that's what Jesus says here. And again, you might say, but Jesus doesn't say anything about sex. He says something about marriage. But that's exactly the point. That again, if we're to understand sexuality, we have to understand how it fits into marriage. We have to understand the design for sexuality and marriage, and more importantly, the design for marriage. But there's another maneuver here Jesus does. Like I said, he joins together these two passages. He alludes to Genesis 1 and 27 and 28. He who created them male and female. But then he jumps forward in the story to the end of chapter 2, and he says, And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, here's something fascinating that Jesus does. If you go back and you read the story in Genesis, you find that statement, God created male and female in his image, and then we open and God creates a single man, Adam, to live and work in and tend a garden. He says, it's not good for that man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable to him. 
And before he does anything, he parades all the animals of the living kingdom before him, and Adam starts to realize there's no one for him either. And then out of his side, while he sleeps, he creates a woman, and Adam's response is, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. And then we get to the, the verse that Jesus quotes here. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What Jesus does here that is so fascinating is he tells us that the speaker of Genesis 2.24 is God himself. Listen. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said... And then he quotes, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That statement in Genesis is not merely the words of a narrator, but the proclamation of God. Okay? Now, why is that significant? It means it tells us that this single wedding in the garden is not just descriptive, it's paradigmatic. It's not just a wedding or a social construct, and the Bible tells us how it came about. It's God's intended and created design for a purpose. If you want to understand the sexual moral logic of Christianity, it comes down to two ideas, and we just touched on both of them. It's that God created male and female in the image of God. And let me deal with something here right now, because when we say male and female, that means bodies. And there's a tendency to go, why do bodies matter so much? What, what's the issue at hand here? But again, what we see here is that that image of God isn't something that just applies to our souls. It's not something that just uh, speaks of our personalities. The very place we're told about it touches on anatomy, physicality, embodiness. The only way we can image is to be embodied. It's, it's part of that, and we are embodied as men and women, as male and female. And second, we have the idea of what marriage is, which is bound up in this idea that the two shall become one flesh. One flesh union. Now, obviously, that language makes us think of, and, and rightly so, sexual union itself. The two becoming one flesh sounds like just picture language for the sexual act itself. But it's very clearly more than that. The language here isn't just talking about uh, what happens at the wedding, that two become one flesh because now they're married. And it's not merely talking about what happens at the honeymoon later that night. It's talking about the aspiration, the orientation, the goal of the marriage itself. The two should become more and more what they really are, one flesh. What does that mean? Marriage is designed to be a comprehensive union. That comprehensive union is comprehensive, so it includes bodies. In sex, we give our entire selves to the other. But when we do that apart from marriage, we may give our body to someone, but we don't give ourselves. We don't give the rest of our lives. We don't give ourselves exclusively. And so it falls short of that comprehensive one flesh union. And so what I'm suggesting to you is that that marriage is designed to be a unique form of intimacy where two people begin to share everything together, share a life, share a home, potentially share a family, and that sex is part of that sharing. And it kind of like when we took communion this morning is both a sign and a renewal of that union. It's a way that we express it ceremoniously and remember our wedding vows, remember and come together. But that leads to all of the sexual ethic. Okay. Why is Christianity opposed to sex outside of marriage? Because it's non-exclusive. And when you give of merely your body and withhold everything else, you don't treat them as whole 
image bearers. In fact, uh, Paul tells us in Thessalonians that sexual immorality exploits other people, even if that exploitation is chosen with consent and mutual. You're taking instead of giving because you're not giving fully. You're giving and holding back. And so why does it need to be exclusive? Why can't you do that with more than one person? Because you're one person. And so to divide the gift is to divide the giver. If you are called to be one flesh, you can only do that with one person. And so it's exclusive. It's also permanent. You can't give the whole of yourself in the moment, but withhold what may come. Right? You are a finite but extended over a period time of time human being. And to give that to another person, all of it, means all of it. And so sexuality is part of this comprehensive union, and so it's exclusive and it's permanent, but it's also complementary. It's also male and female. And part of this is because of this idea of image-bearing, that for marriage to express what God desires it to marriage, it takes, it takes male and female for the full image of God. And this, just for those of you who have read your New Testament, just very lightly points to what Paul says in Ephesians 5 about marriage. That marriage is really about Christ's relationship with the church. And chances are we'll come back to that, but let me just leave it there. But... Even in the story of Genesis, as I told you, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a suitable helper. The, the word there for suitable in the Hebrew is konegdo, and it's a compound word. And it's a paradoxical com- compound word, because the first half of it means the same, and the second half means opposite. Okay. And so the helper that would be suitable to Adam is like and unlike Adam. Suitable means complementary, okay? And so he may have met, as the animals were paraded before, a man's best friend, but not a suitable helper. Had to be someone like him. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But Adam didn't need another man. He needed a woman. Now, notice this is all apart from attraction. That's a separate category. I'm just talking design. Remember, we're in the garden. But this is what I would suggest. When it says it's not good for Adam to be alone, we need to hear that in three different ways. One, Adam is merely male. And at this point, there's no female at all. And so the image of God and its ability to reflect God is incomplete. Men and women are both necessary for the image of God. And so it's not good for man to be merely man. He needs female. It's also not good for Adam to be alone as a husband without a bride. But that's not merely romantic fulfillment. Because what is the commission that Adam's given? To be fruitful and multiply. Adam needs community. He needs to fill the earth to represent the image of God. And so he needs a wife, yes, but he needs a wife so that they can procreate, and that leads to others. You see, these three aspects, the erotic aspect of sexuality, which directly touches on your bodies, the unitive aspect of the two becoming one, and the procreative aspect. The church has talked about those facets of a Christian sexual ethic for thousands of years of being the three pieces. And they're represented in male and female, and husband and wife, and mother and father. There's connective tissue running through all of this. And so when I'm talking about a moral logic, this defines what sex is for. And when we use sex in other ways, it not only does it not complete what sex is for, but it does other things. Let Let me illustrate with pornography. Pornography is a dangerous liturgy. And what I mean is that as we use pornography, it shapes us, just like any liturgy does. 
But the danger is that it shapes us in ways against sexuality's design. And so sexuality was designed for intimacy between two people, but pornography cultivates novelty. Sexuality, as it was designed, uh, is supposed to be the giving of yourself. But pornography cultivates selfishness, right? This whole world, this whole internet worth of images exists for you at your beck and call as you call up whatever it is that you desire. These, this is the knife as a screwdriver. And the truth is, like I said, none of us live in the garden and all of us have twisted our sexuality into other things. And a lot of this is because we do not know the why. Not to mention rope in the house of a hanged man. But Mark Driscoll famously talked about sexuality by saying things like stripper poles and high heels are fine as long as they exist in the marriage bedroom. But do stripper poles and high heels serve the purpose of sexuality as it was designed to cultivate one flesh intimacy and mutual self-giving? Or is it built on a different moral logic that moves in a different direction and actually prohibits and hinders that possibility? You see, this is not just an issue that touches homosexuality or those who find their attractions out of alignment with God's design. This is about what we aspire to in our own lives. This is about what we value and honor. And all I'm trying to ask you to do this morning, I may not have sold you on the moral vision of the Bible, I'm just helping you start the conversation with how do we even begin. And Jesus says you have to begin at the beginning, and he's not alone. When Malachi wants to talk about divorce, he goes to Genesis. When Paul wants to confront those in Corinthians who are sleeping with prostitutes, he goes to Genesis. When he wants to talk to, uh, to men about how to love their wives, he goes to Genesis. We have to start at the beginning and ask that big question, what is sexuality for? Because only if we answer that and discover its purpose can we use it rightly in a way that it was, does what it was meant to and doesn't harm because it wasn't meant to do the things we're trying to do. So moral logic is first. The second one is it has to be consistently applied. What I think is so interesting about this particular conversation that Jesus has here is his disciples' reactions. Have you ever noticed it? Look at verse 10. He says, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now, you may hear that in the modern world where we have a high view of marriage, and so we might fear that in one sense, but you need to remember that this is first century Judaism. You need to remember that these disciples of his have been trained since childhood that you're not fully obedient to the 613 commandments of the Old Testament if you haven't been fruitful and multiplied. Marriage and having children is required. And for them to say, maybe not marry, is wild. But it also shows something really significant here. As far as we know, none of the disciples are divorced or asking the question about remarriage, but they feel the weight of Jesus' moral logic. They feel it broadly as applicable to them, and this is essential. As I said earlier, if it is homophobic, then it is unjust. It treats people differently in different categories. And this is a place that we need to talk about. It is that the sexual ethic of Christianity must be applied consistently to be just. Jesus' language on sexuality is intense. And because we know that he's compassionate and loves sinners, we can sometimes set these things aside, but he always doubles down on the significance of sexuality. So does the rest of the New Testament. It is on every page how important this is to our own sanctification, to our own holiness, to what it means to be human. To go wrong here is to go very wrong. 
But the danger that the church finds itself in is that we look out at the world and we see people dealing with particular sexual sins and we talk to them as Jesus talked to the woman in Samaria. And we say, we know of a fountain of living water and it will quench your thirst. And we know that you've had four husbands and now you're living with a fifth. But we have the fountain of living water that will quench your thirst. And then quietly we take a nip from our little hip flask when we think no one's watching. Listen, homophobia, as I said, in its real form is a horrible sin, but so is hypocrisy. And if the sexual ethic that's laid out before us, that Jesus calls us into, not just because it's right, but because it's good and it accomplishes his will, if it's not good news to us, we're fooling ourselves. In fact, we're even taking advantage of other people if we pretend that it's good news for them. And so the only way that we can go about this is to take seriously the call of Scripture, the design of sexuality, and be rigid in our rooting out of it in our own hearts. But the last one I mentioned is that it might be hateful. And Jesus' last little thing he does here, after they say, it's better not to marry, Jesus says, that's right. Sometimes it's better not to marry. And he makes a list of people, and listen to this list. He says, for there are of eunuchs who have been so from birth. Okay. That, that, that would be what we would call today intersex. There are people who, from birth, it's evident they don't align with God's design for sexuality. And so that sets them apart from the possibility of marriage. There is also, he says, eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And this is kind of the known category of Jesus' day. Royalty through prisoners of war or things like this would castrate young men and enlist them in their service for the rest of their lives. You know what we would call that today? We'd call that oppression, right? What he says here is some people aren't going to experience marriage because of the way other people have hindered their ability to do so. I think we could directly put certain forms of sexual abuse in this category. And then he says, there are also eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, which is a eunuch by choice. Singleness for a greater good, right? But here's what's so powerful about Jesus' image here. Effectively, he says, the kingdom of God is for eunuchs. Now, again, that may not mean very much to you, but it meant a lot to a man in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, Philip is in the midst of a revival in the city of Samaria, and a still small voice tells him to go out to the wilderness. And he follows it obediently, and as he goes out into the wilderness, he sees a chariot, and he hears God telling him to come up alongside it, and inside is a man who we are told is an Ethiopian eunuch. Maybe you know the story, maybe you don't. But the man is reading from a scroll in the book of Isaiah. And it's just this like divine appointment. And Philip ends up leading him to Jesus. And a lot of times I think we read that and we're like, oh, he's an Ethiopian. His skin is black. This is about race. It's about inclusivity. It's not. The pressing issue here for the eunuch is the fact that he's a eunuch. And here, let me lay out some context. This man is a foreigner, yes, but he's traveled all the way to Jerusalem. Maybe that's on court business because we find out he works for the Queen of Ethiopia. But more than likely, it looks like he's a pilgrim. He's a seeker. So much so that he's bringing home with him the entire scroll of Isaiah in a day where you were lucky as a synagogue to have a scroll of Scripture, and he has one for himself. And he's reading in Isaiah, and he's captivated by this one man the one that he reads this passage about. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. 
In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Why does he ask this question? Here's why. Because Deuteronomy says that anyone whose testicles are crushed or anyone who is a eunuch is not welcome in the assembly of the Lord. That means that when he got to Jerusalem, he could go by the temple but not into it. And yet Isaiah speaks of a day where something new is going to happen. He speaks of a time where something uh, is going to change and it directly addresses eunuchs. Listen to this. This is in Isaiah 56, just two chapters after the passage he reads to Philip. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree, for thus says the Lord to eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That is a full welcome for the eunuch. And this Ethiopian eunuch's been reading Isaiah for a while and he knows this only comes through the one who suffers and he wants to know who he is. Does this reading sound outlandish? Does it sound creative? Let's look at the nail in the coffin. At the very end of the passage here in Acts chapter 8, after beginning with Isaiah, he explains to him all about Jesus. Notice what it says here. Apologies for the page turning. I only have two bookmarks in my Bible and I already used both. Okay, so this is the question that he asks in verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prohibits me from being baptized? What obstacle stands in my way? Nothing. And Philip baptizes him and welcomes him into the church. You see, and this is where I want to talk about a little bit longer format in the workshop before our Q&A. For LGBT, excuse me, LBGT, geez, LGBT Christians to follow Jesus, to embrace a historic Christian sexual ethic, and for them to flourish requires them having a community to flourish in. In another place, Jesus was speaking in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 9. Can you actually pull that passage up for me on the screen? The Mark passage. Oh, I thought we went over it. All right. We'll have to do it from memory. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking about the cost of discipleship. And Peter speaks up and he said, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. And he says, I tell you the truth, that anyone for whom my sake forsakes mother or father or husband or wife or home, they shall receive eternal life in heaven and in this life a hundredfold. What he suggests there is that those who leave greatly will also find greatly in this life. He promises a blessing to those who leave their spouses to follow Jesus, and we are to be that blessing. We are to be the home for the eunuch. We are to be the place that gives a full and welcome. 
We are to be the ones who become the family to those without family. And when we fail to do so, again, we fall under the fire of Jesus who warned those who heap heavy burdens on others and don't lift a finger to help carry them. The call to follow Jesus for those who have to choose Jesus over their sexual uh, desires, over their sexual attraction, comes at a great cost, but it is not a call to loneliness. It is not a call to isolation. It's not a call to be alone. It's a call into the community of the people of God into the family of God as brothers and sisters, into the full flourishing of the male and female, fruitful and multiply community that God has designed in Christ. And so, this is what it would look like for Christianity to be not merely in its actuality, but also in its application, in its visibility, in its reputation, to not be homophobic. It would have to have a strong moral logic that anyone can see. I may not agree on how you get that, but that's what I want. It has to have a consistent application where there's not a double standard or a second row or additional requirements for those who are different than us. We all have to take up our cross and follow Jesus together. We all have to. Just one illustration of this because I can't resist. Paul exhorts those who are married in the same passage where he tells us that singleness is better, come to the workshop. Um... He says, even those of you who are married should live as if you were not. Do you even know what that means? Do you even know what Paul's point is there? It seems pretty central. The fear is that we're taking the world's moral logic and the self-righteousness that comes with being God's people and having our cake and eating it too while others starve. But it also requires the church to be the church, which is the true community of love, the most prioritized community of love in the New Testament, not the family. Let's pray. Father, I want to begin just by praying on behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ and just confess, like C.S. Lewis told us decades ago, that our problem is not that we desire too much, but that we have desired too little. That we have settled for a sexuality that has the form of godliness but denies its power. That we have settled for a sexuality built on the same foundation of our world and then called foul when the world follows it to the logical conclusions of it, that we have given ourselves a soft pass in discipleship and put high burdens on others. I also want to pray for your church that you would open our eyes to understand the design of sexuality, that we would be able to enter into it in a way that brings true flourishing and benefits other people and achieves the deep longings that we all have in a way that's compelling to the world around us. And I also want to pray for anyone here who's not a Christian and and came because this is a clear sticking point. I pray, Lord, that you would just help them to have just enough room to ask not, not to answer, but to see and to look and to be honest with the question of just how messed up sexuality is in the hands of human beings. 
none of us are untouched by the awfulness and the failure of our brokenness on this issue. And I pray you would use that just to open them up to look and to listen, not to my words, not to the words of this church, but to the words of Jesus himself, who spoke to the sexually broken and said things like, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Who said to the woman at the well, come, drink of the fountain of living water and your desires will be fully quenched and you'll thirst no more. God, just do a work. Reveal yourself as the God who's so loving that even your judgments, even your laws, even your rules are expressions of that love. And no place did you demonstrate that greater in that your response to our failures and to our self-salvation and to us going off each on our own way was to freely and willingly become a man, to enter into human life, to live a life of perfect love, always doing the things that pleased the Father, a life of righteousness that we could not live, and then stepping onto a cross again, willingly and freely in our place, to bear the penalty, the consequence, the punishment of our sin and then inviting us to come and freely dine at the table, to be a part of your family, to enter into a relationship with you. God, none of us can live right sexual lives if we don't understand your love. So reveal it in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.